0: Hello, welcome to the Inquire Mind podcast, with me, Stanley Goldberg. Today, I'll be speaking with Barry Schwartz, who's the Doran Cartwright Professor of Social Theory and Social Action at Swarthmore College, and since 2016, he has been the visiting professor at the University of California, Berkeley. His work focuses on the intersection of psychology and economics. He also frequently writes for the New York Times, and has spoken at TED for a total of four times. His TED Talks are entitled The Paradox of Choice, The Way We Think About Work is Broken, Our Loss of Wisdom, What Role Does Luck Play in Life? His books include The Paradox of Choice, which is central to our discussion today, Why We Work, Practical Wisdom, and The Battle for Human Nature. As always, if you enjoy what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to the show. Please also consider sending feedback as well, as it is greatly appreciated and would help me grow on this journey. And now, without further delay, I bring you Barry Schwartz. Barry Schwartz, welcome to the Inquiry Mind podcast.
1: Pleasure to be with you. Thanks for thinking of inviting me.
0: Yeah, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, obviously, we have a lot to discuss considering you wrote uh, books on a wide variety of subjects, uh, The Paradox of Choice, which I have right here, uh, Why We Work and Practical Wisdom. But uh, before we get started and get into a little bit about each book, uh, can you tell the audience a little bit about what you do and how you first got interested in psychology?
1: Well, (laughs) So I got interested in psychology as a freshman in college in 19, this is going to be shocking, 1964, when I, um, I took an introductory psychology course taught at NYU where I was a student by a person I later learned was like a world-renowned introductory psychology teacher a guy named Philip Zimbardo who a few years later went off to uh, Stanford where he spent the rest of his career and he just turned me on so from that day on 18 years old that was all I wanted to do and um, that never changed I went straight to graduate school got a job and the rest is history I kept the job for 45 years then I retired and moved to the west coast and now I'm teaching part-time at Berkeley so he turned me on one teacher can make a difference
0: was he the only one or were there more
1: no I mean I found plenty I mean I didn't feel as I studied more and more that he had deceived me I found a lot about psychology that was incredibly fascinating endlessly fascinating so I was happy that that happened but I I suspect that with a different introductory psychology teacher it wouldn't have happened. It's not like I knew much about the world as an 18 year old.
0: Right. And when you so why did you wanted to decide to become a professor rather than maybe go into the private sector or um...
1: it never even occurred to me um, to go into the private sector. The thing about uh, being becoming a professor, There are two things about it that are were attractive. One is I really thought that teaching the next generation and the one after that was about as good a contribution as one could make. Um, And the other is that as a teacher, it's never the same twice. You know, you talk about the same topic, but every time you talk about it, it's different and the students react to it differently so i sort of was imagining seeing members of my family aunts and uncles and so on feeling like they've come to a dead end in their lives making a living and the sense i got is that i would never feel that way because it would always be i'd always find new things in what i did and that proved to be true
0: so there was and there was never a time in your career where you said you know what maybe 20 year mark or 30 year mark where it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to, no, it was never. That's that's good to hear.
1: (laughs) It is good to hear, but you know, there are a lot of people get restless. They get frustrated. Uh, It does feel like the same old, same old. There's another thing too. I spent most of my career teaching undergraduates. There weren't any PhD students and you know, they come in much more imaginative and open than graduate students do because graduate students are essentially training for a career. They wanna do things that will enable them to get papers published, which will enable them to get jobs. Undergraduates, at least, certainly back then more so than now, they're just interested in learning. They're not worried about their futures yet. They're too naive to be <laughs> worried about their futures. And, um, and they bring ideas from left field that are, would never have occurred to people once they've been trained that are really interesting to pursue and think about. So I think that helped. If I had been working in a university and had graduate students in a lab, it's possible I would have decided at some point I've had enough of this. But it never happened with uh, the 18 to 21-year-olds.
0: Yeah, I think the the other thing about undergraduate students, I'm going to speak for myself, is when you walk into a classroom, you're always looking for that inspiration. You're looking for somebody, one professor to really, you know, grab you, especially when you don't know what you want to do with the rest of your life. And there's a lot of pressure going to college with, you know, do I go into business? Do I go into, you know, pre-med? So you're always looking for that professor. So, um. That's why I would imagine a lot more undergraduates are open rather than PhD students who are already, they already know where they're going. So- Exactly. And um, there's
1: another thing too, um, and times really have changed in the half century. uh, There's a lot more emphasis now, I think, when kids are in high school, that you go to college to learn a trade, a career that will make you a living. And if you don't do it, life is going to be hell and so there's a certain sense in which even at age 18 people think that college is job training Uh, and so they're you know they're they're career oriented too early at least in my opinion and that was not true in 19 in 1971 when i started teaching Um, people they just kind of took it for granted that they'd find a way to make a living And that's not why they were there. They were there to uh, figure out how the world works or how they work or what's important in life and stuff like that. And the career they figured would take care of itself. And mostly I think they were right. Privileged kids uh, in a a high quality school could be pretty certain that their future would take care of itself. But I don't think people feel that way now and they probably shouldn't.
0: Yeah, I think that also leads to some level of discontent when you get to the workplace uh, because you have this pressure, whether it be societal pressure, just looking at your, you know, your friends, your family, whatever the the pressures may be where people get pigeonholed way too early. um, Especially because, you know, and I I don't really blame them. Like when I went to school, a lot of kids, you know, you dangle $75,000 out of, uh, out of college to an undergraduate. That's, that's more money than most of us have ever seen. So obviously we go and take it. Uh, but then the assumption is that you're gonna you know stay there for a long time and yeah. and you're gonna do this. And I think it leads to a lot of, well, depression. I think that's, I, I, I don't know about depression. I haven't studied the issue, but it does leave, uh, lead to a lot of people being dissatisfied with their jobs.
1: I think that's right and, and it doesn't help that people graduate from college with massive amounts of debt, in comparison to years and years ago. You know, the cost of college has gone up. At, I don't know, three times the cost of living. Uh, so it's just unbelievably expensive. And a lot of people, that you know, their families take care of it, but there are still a lot of students who get out of college with massive debt, so they can't. They can't not look at a 75k starting salary you know they're 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 starting in a hole and they have to dig themselves out of the hole and that was much less of an issue 50 years ago than it is now
0: yeah 100% so obviously i mentioned that you've written on a wide variety of subjects uh let me start with uh the book i had i showed before the paradox of choice how did you first get interested in this topic and uh do you think the ideas that you wrote about uh I would what is it 15 years ago? This book more, was first book. yeah, more than 15 years ago, do they still hold up?
1: All right. So I got interested in it um in a kind of convoluted way. Uh I had spent a lot of time thinking about what sort of having an economics-driven view of the world does to people. And I think it mostly does bad things to people. You know, thinking about uh, people as essentially self-interested, trying to get as much material benefit as they possibly can out of every decision they make, every interaction they have, um, uh, undermines, destroys, erodes uh, our willingness to aid one another, our willingness to commit time, energy, and resources to the well-being of other people, our willingness to cultivate and maintain relationships, and so on. Uh, but, but you know the one thing that stopped me short when I would write an article or something that criticized the market um, was that the market catered to freedom of choice, and everyone everyone thinks that freedom of choice is a great thing and the more choice people have, the better off they are, the happier they'll be. And so whatever the pitfalls of having too much market influence on education, on medicine, on law, you name it, it was worth it because it it's, it's what enabled us to be free. And then this paper appeared that was a study showing that when you give people some choice, 're ha- they' they're happy to choose and they're satisfied with what they've chosen when you give them a lot of choice instead of being liberated by it they're paralyzed so this study was published in uh, 2000 uh, and uh, it showed that though choice is good there can be too much of a good thing and this was my window into continuing the sort of critical work i had done about about the limits of markets, because even choice, the one thing that free market economics does best, has its limits. Uh, and so I started looking around, and uh, and the book I wrote, which is mostly a, a description of other people's research, not my own, uh, was basically meant to convey to people how it could be that although some of cho- some choice is good, more of it can be bad. Uh, and in your second question, which is the book is now close to 20 years old, is it still true? The answer is it's true to the fourth power. It's, it is as bad as it was in, when I was writing this book. It's much worse now. Um, you know, the Internet basically didn't exist in a serious way. or At least Internet commerce didn't really exist and now it's exploded so you know and streaming didn't exist and now it's exploded and covid exploded it even more since nobody goes out of the house so so as bad a, as 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 bad a problem as it was in 2000 2001 it's wor- it's a worse problem now and i think we see it in people's sort of perpetual state of stress and disappointment with the decisions they make and inability to pull the trigger.
0: So yes, it is
1: still with us and let me make something clear it is not no it, not everyone has this problem. Some people have no problem making decisions no matter how large the set of options is. and even those who do have problems don't have problems in every part of their lives they they welcome all the decisions when it comes to restaurant choice and they are annoyed with it when it comes to, I don't know, choosing an apartment or, uh, or buying groceries. So I don't wanna suggest that this is, this is a problem that plagues everyone. It plagues many people much of the time and leads to
0: paralysis,
1: to bad decisions, and to dissatisfaction even when people make good decisions.
0: Yeah, I think if you take your hypothesis on, on face value, it can seem almost like an oxymoron because how can too much choice, because in some ways Americans especially have been programmed to, uh, to think that more choice equals, you know, it's better. I'm exactly right. Yeah. I'm an economics major and that's pretty much what I've been taught for four years. So. But every um,
1: economics major has been taught, you know, I mean, look, here's the thing. What an economist would say is if you're happy alternating between Rice Krispies and Cheerios, then you can ignore the 200 other cereals on the shelf. So as far as you're concerned, there are only two. If you're not happy with those two, well, there are options. And so if people who are satisfied, adding an option makes nobody worse off. If you don't need that option, you'll ignore it and it will make somebody better off. So why wouldn't you just do everything you can to just keep adding options? Every new option improves somebody's life, makes nobody's life worse. This is
0: paradise. it turns out they're wrong. It does make people's lives worse when you add options. Similar similar to your example in your book where you first realized this issue and uh, you walked into a gap, if I'm not mistaken, to buy jeans and, and to have, what, 15 different types of uh, relaxed fit slim fit all this yeah. all this stuff I, I just while reading your book i realized i have the same problem when it comes to um when my girlfriend and i are trying to decide what to watch on netflix right so you have you have you have thousands of movies yeah. and every night it's the same issue where it's like what are we going to watch and there's so many so we end up scrolling through all these movies for an hour instead of actually watching something
1: you don't know no this is i think netflix is the is the sort of poster child of this problem for this this particular moment in our history and what i find a lot of people do do it myself is they do the scrolling that you described and they finally shrug their shoulders and they watch reruns of the office for the fifth time
0: That's
1: what I do. (laughs) Because at least that they know they'll enjoy. I mean, what could happen? You pick a movie and it sucks. And you think, oh, my God, with all these options, how could I have chosen this? At least if you watch The Office, you know that you'll get a chuckle. And, you know, so what good does it do you to have 20,000 options if you just end up watching the same show over and over and over again? And a lot of people have described to me exactly what you said. It just takes forever to choose. You have no idea how to choose. Um, And then you spend half the movie thinking that another option would have been better.
0: My question is, knowing all of this research, I mean, I assume Netflix and Hulu and all these streaming platforms know all of these uh, studies. Why don't they limit their uh, selection?
1: That's a great question. And this is another thing an economist would say. I must be wrong, because if I were right, some smart company would take what i have ser- to say seriously and provide a market alternative that caters to people who are overwhelmed with options. and so mm-hmm. the fact that netflix doesn't do it and hulu doesn't do it and amazon doesn't do it must mean that i'm wrong because these companies are leaving money on the table by not sort of um curating what's available. so i don't know the i don't know how to answer the question. netflix should be doing that. now they try to do it by putting Putting the what they offer into categories, and you can just go across the screen in your category. uh, Then instead of having ten thousand options, you only have one thousand options to choose from. Right? So, so um, and they, you know, if people were a little bit more uh, conscientious about rating movies after they watch them, there's algorithms would almost certainly be making recommendations to you that were pretty good. And chances are what they said, you know, they thought you would like, you would end up liking or at least be interested in. Um, So I don't know why they don't do it, but they certainly don't. Well, here's what it's just a guess. If you ask most people in this culture whether they want more choice or less choice, they always say, I want more. And so when you tell people, listen, I'm only going to show you 10 options. It's for your own good. They won't believe you and they'll go to the site that shows a thousand options. So we are not, we, they're giving us what we want. And the problem is that what we want, isn't what we should want. Does that make
0: sense? Yes. Yes. But it's not maybe what we want. We don't say what we actually want because we don't know that we want it. (laughs) You know, I, I, that's
1: what we want, but we want options
0: correct give me options
1: the more the better so they're giving people what they say they want and then people are tortured and they don't quite understand that the reason they're tortured is that netflix has given them a thousand movies to choose from
0: but i also think it's again i'm not going to speak for other countries but in the united states there's this distinct um character trait where if you tell us no we're going to take away some choice yeah. Or there are these people, perhaps, or companies that know what we want better than what we want, than what we think we want. Yeah. Uh, then we think it's an infringement on our well, rights. Well,
1: there's no question about it. You pay a huge price for. Um, it's funny though, because if you make it invisible enough, you know the, uh, you know all the social media do this. They basically tailor the feeds we get to the feeds we've looked at in the past mm. and it feels like we're these autonomous people making our own decisions when in fact, you know, under the hood, Facebook is tailoring what we see uh to be consistent with what we've seen before and what we've, you know, what we've liked. So we're a lot less autonomous than we claim to be. We kid ourselves a lot about how autonomous we are, and this has always been true when you go to the supermarket, things are arranged in shelves to, to manipulate the crap out of you. Mm-hmm. you know, they, everyone knows the stuff at eye level so sells better than the stuff that's low down or high up. Stuff on end cap sells more than the stuff in the middle of the aisle. And uh, you know, manufacturers pay a lot of money to supermarkets for p- product placement. So you go in thinking, I know what I like, I know what I want and in fact you walk out with stuff you didn't come in looking for mm-hmm. it happens all the time so it's a little bit of self deception uh, nonetheless if you ask people what would you choose a place that offers you 50 movies or a place that offers you 5 everyone would go with 50 so you're just catering to what the market wants
0: yeah i think in the in the case of say movies or you know streaming platforms all that it's a little easier to to prove to people or to show people that you know what maybe less choices is, is better when it comes to serious like social issues some uh, or policy such as healthcare, that I think you touch on in your book um, that's that's a harder a way harder sell where you it can is say a way harder sell
1: but it's even maybe even more true because uh, you know are you in a position to decide whether you should have surgery or chemotherapy for your cancer? I mean, are you an expert? Mm-hmm. You, 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 we wanna be in control of our healthcare. We don't know squat about what's relevant. At least when with movies, we kinda of know what we like. We don't know what what our healthcare decision should be. It's true, you don't wanna simply be forced to do X rather than Y but you sure as hell want guidance from the people who ostensibly you know, spent years and years studying the field so that they can make an intelligent recommendation. Um, so I think with important, really important decisions, our lack of uh, of knowledge in the domain is, is quite substantial. Um, uh, and it seems to me we see this in the incredibly disparate way people have responded to recommendations regarding covid you know do you, do you do what the science says no i'm a free agent i'm going to make my own decisions about how contagious this disease is why should i listen to the scientists i know better than them
0: i'll take my chances
1: it's preposterous but even what? then
0: you're but even then you're taking on the opinion of somebody else like even the people that don't Quote, unquote," listen to the science they listen to somebody else and they, they just yeah. purely oh. regurgitate the words of somebody saying something contrary to the science scientists
1: that may be true but that's not i i don't know that that's how they see it from the inside they think yeah, they sure. make their their independent decisions yeah uh looking at the evidence and deciding that, you know, I don't know, the vaccine has an implant and Zuckerberg is gonna be able to read your mind or some preposterous uh, 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 theory. Uh, so, so um, I think we need to be guided in many of our decisions without being compelled. You know, there's this, um, there's this, there's this uh, line of work that's started to be d- done as policy in uh, several countries, including the U.S. It sort of goes under the general heading nudging. Mm-hmm. You don't force people to do anything. What you do is you set up the environment, the choice environment, so that it's really easy to make one choice and hard to make the other. So I'm not forcing you to be an organ donor when you renew your driver's license. You are free to opt out. However, when you go to renew your driver's license, the default is that you will be an organ donor. So it's not required. You can choose not to be, but if you don't choose anything, you're an organ donor. And that's not the way it works in the United States. In the United States, you have to opt in to be an organ donor. In many European countries, you have to opt out. In European countries, organ donation uh, rates are roughly 95 to 98%. In the United States, about 25%. Do you think Europeans are nicer than Americans? I don't think so. It really is all about engineering the choice environment. Same comes with putting money away for retirement. Most companies, it's opt in, take 5% of my paycheck and put it into a 401k you can't do it the other way around. We're going to take 5% of your paycheck and put it into a 401k unless you tell us not to. If you do it that way, many more people start putting away money for retirement way earlier. And so that's a kind of compromise where nothing is compelled, but you pay attention to structuring the environment so that it is really easy for people. When people choose, it's easy for them to choose what's in their best interest. And that also is very controversial. You know, I don't know if you if you're aware of this, but when when, uh, ex-President Trump started raising money um, in anticipation of his leaving office, there was these, um, you know, um, uh, online donation forms that went to his long list of uh, supporters. And there was a box that said, make this a monthly contribution. And that box was pre-checked. So you had to uncheck it. So you give 20 bucks and without realizing it, you're giving 20 bucks a month from now until the end of time. And people had no idea that that's what they were doing. They, they finally got clued in and they, and they actually protested to some, I don't know, the, the national election uh, board and the, the, Trump Organization was forced to return, I don't know, $20 million to people who had accidentally committed themselves to making a a monthly contribution when they had intended to make a one-time contribution. So, So even this thing can be manipulated against people's interests rather than serving people's interests. But it's a way to sort of find a middle ground between compelling people to do what makes sense, and simply giving them a cafeteria menu and letting them do whatever the hell they want. And that seems to me to be a sensible way to proceed in a country like this one that so values individual freedom of choice.
0: Right. And I remember um, the nudge unit in the United Kingdom, which was uh it's based on the work of richard thaler who were oh, and Cass They're sunstein right yeah and i remember when reading misbehaving which is uh richard thaler's book yeah. i had the same th- i had a thought when it came to the organ do- uh, donations uh being in uh, to opting. sorry to opting in to being an organ donor yeah. Um in the united states if somebody because in some ways we're a more religious country than Uh, the united kingdom um if say somebody passes away and they were opted into this organ donor checklist or whatever then their family could be like well that can't happen because it goes against my religion that can't happen so i think in some ways that can cause problems because when people when people don't know that they're being that they were already opted in even though
1: no, 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 you're right. Uh, if you have a default that says you're an organ donor, some people will be or some people will be organ donors on purpose and some will be organ donors by mistake. Just as some people gave Trump twenty dollars a month on purpose and some did it by mistake. So there's no question that the default, when you have a default, some people will get the default without meaning to. And the question is, is that is that as bad as having people who would be organ donors, but they didn't have the time to think it through? You know, we've got, we've got five-year waiting lists for kidneys and uh, hearts and livers, you name it. There are people dying every hour because there aren't organs for them. So the idea that some people from inattention were not organ donors is also a mistake. And we have to sort of weigh which of these two kinds of mistakes is more consequential. The one where you are an organ donor though you, you didn't mean to be, or the one where you're not an organ donor though you did mean to be. And those are hard issues. I'm not suggesting they're easy. But there's no way of organizing choices so that you can be confident that people are always choosing what they really want. And this strikes me as better than simply compelling people to be an organ donor, which wouldn't fly in this this culture, uh, or leaving things as they are, knowing that there will be thousands of people who die who would have been perfectly happy to be organ donors if only you'd made it a little easier for them to choose that option so this is an ongoing debate you know people are very nervous about nudging and all it takes is an example like what trump trump's fundraising to show how it can easily mis, be misused
0: yeah i remember a couple of years ago when i was in college this was like a big topic of conversation should we have these opt-in yeah. and nudge unit types um and then it kind of went away Probably because of Trump's policies, or or just he didn't care for it, which is his right. Uh, but do you see a trend in the new president uh, with the new president in that direction, or or not?
1: Who knows? Uh, Obama started a nudge unit too. It wasn't called that, and it made it. You know, it was doing research, and it actually um, led to a handful of actual policy changes all of which were, one was designed to get the military to put more money, to save more. So that when they retired, they would have a decent nest egg. And it was, you know, didn't have a huge effect. It was basically this thing where if you do nothing, some of your paycheck goes into a retirement fund. Uh, Didn't have a huge effect. But when you think that there are 3 million people in the military or however many there were, and each of them ends up saving an additional one, one and a half percent a year, that amounts to a very, very significant uh, improvement in their, um, you know, their retirement prospects. And it costs, you know, it costs like $20 to implement, (laughs) so what it got but you got benefits and you got benefits with virtually no cost to the so they did a few things like that and uh i have not heard that but i guess maybe when he has solved all the other problems he inherited biden will get around to thinking about it but i can't imagine that it is high on his list of priorities at the moment
0: yeah um obviously because we are um you know, time is limited. Uh, I want to maybe pivot a little bit to one of your other uh, topics that you talk about. When I was researching for this, for the podcast, uh, I saw you talk about work and what makes uh, maybe how you can create a happier, maybe a work environment, and creating a happier workforce. So, there is this feeling that a lot of people have given the choice would sit, sit at home if they were just paid and do nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, is that a myth or do you see that as a partial truth?
1: Well, so it's complicated, it's a partial truth. And the question then becomes why? Uh, and here's my take. Uh, I think in general, people want to be useful. In their lives, they want to be engaged in activities that are productive. They want to be engaged in activities where they can demonstrate some mastery, some skill acquisition, where they can be challenged and meet the challenges, uh, and where what they do has meaning, which is to say, what they do has an impact on other people's lives. They want all of those things. Uh, so if Society were full of jobs that offered people autonomy, discretion, opportunity to get to get good at things, um, uh, and meaningfulness. I don't think anybody would stay home. The problem is that society is not full of jobs like that. It's full of jobs where you're basically just doing the same thing over and over and over again, and you're you know you start looking at your computer clock five minutes after you start your workday. So given the kind of work that most people actually have, I think they probably would be happy sitting on a couch, eating eating chips, trying to decide what Netflix movie to watch. But that's not because people are basically lazy. It's because we have structured work to to essentially take all the meaning out of it. And you occasionally see people in jobs of that kind who manage to find meaning in. Is an example I sometimes give if you're doing retail in a mall. Your job is, you know, sell as much junk as you possibly can in the course of a day. And you can't wait till work is over so you can go, you know, get pizza and, and beer with your friends and complain about what a horrible work day you had. That's one view of what selling retail is. But here's another view. Everyone who comes into your store has a problem. Not a big problem, some problem. You know the merchandise, you know the strengths and weaknesses of the various products. If you take your job seriously, you can solve that problem. And in some small way, make that person's life better. And so you have dozens of opportunities every single day to make other people's lives better. Now, who thinks about their job in retail in that way? virtually nobody. Why? I mean, it's 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 actually a, a fact, right? You go in to buy an item of clothing, I was going to say jeans, but since nobody ever sees anybody's bottom half, I don't think there's been a lot of jeans being sold. So t-shirts, sweaters, what have you, sweatshirts, you go in to buy something, you do it because you need it. And this person can solve your problem this person who's selling to you. And if you succeed in getting something that's more or less what you were looking for, your your day has been improved. And multiply that by thousands and thousands, millions of people, and all of a sudden working retail, you are in the problem-solving business and not the selling crap business. Now, why is it that people don't think about their retail work in that way? Hospital janitors, they clean, they mop floors, they empty trash cans, they do all that stuff. Some janitors think their job is to do whatever they can to help doctors and nurses in what they need help with and to ease ease the stress and anxiety of patients and patients' loved ones. Now, none of that stuff is in their job description but some of them find a way to recraft the work they do so that what they do is central to the mission of the hospital and eases an enormous amount of suffering, psychological pain on the part of patients and patients' families. All of a sudden, the people who are, you know, in some sense invisible in the hospital, not only become visible, but become essential to the experiences of patients and patients' families. And again, during COVID, all of these invisible people became heroes because they were frontline workers risking their lives so that we would have toilet paper uh, and um, you know, yeast and flour so that we could bake our breads and wipe our behinds and so on and so forth. And you know every night at seven, we'd open up our windows and give them a round of applause. Well, they were just as much heroes a month before COVID as they were after, but we basically regarded them as invisible and they regarded themselves that way too. You know, they they got no respect for the work that they did and it's hard to respect yourself when nobody around you respects you. So for a short time, our attitude toward these, these kinds of workers changed. Will it last? I'm guessing it won't, that they will go back to being invisible. And so I think, that if we actually paid attention to answering the question, what can we do to the shape of our workplaces so that people want to go to work every day, then you'd find virtually nobody who wants to sit on a couch eating chips and watching Netflix movies. But we haven't asked that question as a society. And um, the result is that most people spend half their waking lives doing something they'd rather not be doing. And that's an enormous waste of human Time and potential,
0: and I, as you I, said,
1: leading in it makes you know it, it costs people an enormous amount of their ha- of happiness that they would otherwise be experiencing if they came home every day feeling that they had done a good day's work and and made a difference.
0: I completely agree with you because when I worked, one of my first jobs was in retail. Uh, I was lucky enough to work in New York City, where I live, and on a on on Broadway where a lot of people tourists would come um and the way I viewed my job was well I get to talk to people from different cultures and interact with them and learn which is how I made it interesting for myself I almost made it kind of like a game and um the other part when my my dad first came to this country uh you know no money in his pocket the only job couldn't speak English. So he went to work in construction. And what I noticed to this day, and it's, it's actually funny, because a lot of the people that are pretty sad are the ones that get to during COVID, for example, sit at home and work from home and do all this, all these things. And they sound cool, and they pay well. But my dad, who was a construction worker, always when we drive past a like a building, he goes, well, I helped build that, you know, there's a sense of pride, that comes with a job like that. And I think when you can view the world like that and make everyday kind of uh, interesting in one way or another, that's, that's when the reward kicks in.
1: I agree, but I don't want to put it all on the people who are doing the work. You you know, you can create a work environment that is hospitable to having that view Mm -hmm. and a work environment that just defeats it. You know, You see, you go by somebody, uh, some bricklayers laying bricks and you say, what are you doing? And they say, I'm building a monument. Well, they're not building a monument, they're laying bricks, (laughs) you know? But if if you are encouraged to take ownership of what the collective is engaged in, then of course you're building a monument. There wouldn't be a monument without you laying those damn bricks. So there's a lot there's a lot that we can do to find meaning in the work we do but there's a lot that the people who supervise us who pay us our salaries can do to make it easy for us relatively easy for us to find meaning and and people have just systematically ignored the importance of that when they make decisions about how to uh, how to organize work it's all about faster cheaper bigger you know how quickly can I get this shipment of whatever you've ordered on Amazon to your doorstep? And so I create fulfillment centers with a focus, a hundred percent focus on speed and efficiency and not on what that work feels like to the people who are doing it. doesn't have to be that way.
0: I a hundred percent agree. Obviously again, because we have five minutes left. Uh, I I have a lot to ask, but uh maybe for a future time we could do this again. Um, I wrap up every episode by asking two questions, so I'm gonna put them into one, and you can answer them in any order you so uh, you see fit. Uh, the first one is, uh, what gives you hope for the future, and uh especially with these uncertain kind of COVID times, and the second is, what are what are five books or more on any topic, fiction or nonfiction, that you would recommend to, huh. to anyone?
1: Well, that second one is hard. Uh <laughs> it uh,
0: always get, it always gets people.
1: <laughs> the um the first one, the um what gives me hope is seeing the people I teach, young, young people, and now that I'm teaching MBA students, young adults, I mean people in their twenties, not teenagers is that they really seem hell bent on contributing to this kind of social transformation that will make this a better place for people to live their lives that will address a lot of the social evils that currently characterize American society and try to mitigate them Um, and they won't take crappy jobs just for a paycheck they don't want to waste their talent and their time doing nothing but enriching themselves. So that I find encouraging, and the, the 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 enormous increase in the entry of women into the workforce makes that even more true, because women seem more concerned than men collectively uh, with doing something that makes a difference. Uh, it's less about the paycheck for women than it is for men. This may change, but at this moment, the snapshot in history, that seems to be the way things are. As for books, I'll I'll just name a couple. I'm not sure I can come up with five. Mostly, I mean, they're all nonfiction. Um, uh, one is a book called After Virtue, written by a philosopher named Alastair MacIntyre. Um, one is a book called Social Limits to Growth, written by an economist named Fred Hirsch about the limits of markets in, uh, as the tool for providing people with what they need. Uh, the, there's a book by Daniel Kahneman that was a huge bestseller called Thinking Fast and Slow. It's a kind of summary of his career, studying how people make decisions.
0: Um, that, that That's a good start. I keep Uh, people busy. um, I really appreciate your time. Uh, I really hope we could do this again. Thank you very much. Uh, My pleasure. All the best to you. Take care.